but I felt that 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 the divine suffers as we suffer, and people have suffered so much, and many people feel it can't be healed because they she isn't here in her. We don't have the feminine dimension of the divine. We are able to love and to relate and have children be born and die and we grieve. But if we have, if we can draw her back from the cosmos into our hearts, into our being, into daily life, then we could see that there's, we could see the larger picture, the deeper meaning. And we also would not have to suffer like this. But there was some part of the feminine divine, and I'm not sure I understand it entirely yet, some part of the feminine divine that that trauma was almost too great to even begin to bear for her. Prophecies have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know, that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast... We are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shayna Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Woohoo! Welcome back to another episode of the Time of the Feminine. Today, Shana and I are thrilled to announce that we have a returning guest, Betty J. Kovacs. If you have not listened to her episode in the first season, we highly suggest it. Betty earned her doctorate from the University of California, Irvine in comparative literature and the theory of symbolic mythic language. She taught literature, writing, and symbolic mythic language for 25 years. She served many years as chair and program chair on the board of directors of the Young Society of Claremont in California and sits on the academic advisory board of the Forever Family Foundation. Dr. Kovacs is author of Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That is Changing the World, winner of the Nautilus Silver Book Award, and the Scientific and Medical Network 2019 Book Prize. She has also written The Miracle of Death, There is Nothing But Life. And without further ado, welcome, Betty. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Shana's clapping. You can't see her, but she's clapping. Before we started this interview today, we were discussing what we were going to talk about. Shana was like, I'm so excited because I get to go to school with Betty. Oh, that's so great. So in this conversation today, we're going to dive into the terms divine feminine and divine masculine. And what are these universal energies through the lens of myth? through the lens of spirituality, and also just through the lens of how we relate to primal energies of the universe. And Betty is going to share a little bit about where these terms come from, some of the history, and then we'll all share a little bit about how we relate to these, these energies in our lives. 
So Betty, I'd love to pass it to you to begin. Okay. Well, this was something that was very interesting to me for many years because I wanted to know more about who we are and why we're here and what's it all about. (laughs) I was teaching college, and so I designed a course in which I could just learn and teach at the same time. And this was in the early 60s, and the students were so excited about all of this, and we just learned a lot together and discovered things together. But uh, I continued the research over the years and after I retired and wrote Merchants of Light. But what what is so important to know and remember about these images that are masculine and feminine is that they are archetypes or symbols of realities and potentials within each one of us. We each have the masculine potential and we each have the feminine potential. Now, if we're born male or female, we will tend probably to have certain tendencies nurtured by the society in us and just biologically, there will be certain tendencies. But as we grow, we are nurturing those particular tendencies, usually one more than the other. And then when we relate to other children, or later when we relate to, let's say, if we're women and we fall in love with someone, we live with that person, we are learning constantly. Both of us are learning constantly these tendencies, these ways of looking at the world from each other. And we're gradually integrating these different ways of of looking at the world. But if we go back in history, we can see that around 40,000 BCE, shamanism developed all around the world around the same time. And they, these people learned how to trigger that valve that opens us to our larger beingness, our larger consciousness. So there were many, many rituals. And there was the honoring, first of all, of nature, because nature is our larger body and the cosmos. And nature was always symbolized as the feminine. And of course, because the characteristics of the female body is the birthing process and the nurturing process. And they also felt that it was into her body, the body of the earth, that we went at death. And then we were rebirthed by her. So the first major symbol is feminine because she gives birth. She is the whole cycle of birthing, maintaining life, bringing death, and bringing rebirth. This is the cycle. And our ancestors wanted more than anything to know and understand the laws of nature because they realized that those laws are our laws. We must live by those. And if we live by those laws, then that allows our creativity, our individuality to flow. So the feminine was a symbol of nature and understanding her laws and living in harmony with them. It's the harmony that will allow us to be creative. And we realized that later when that was lost, that the creativity went kind of underground, the true creativity. There was more a loss of freedom and a control of how we should behave what we could and couldn't do. But let's go back to the earlier stages. From the cave cultures from, let's say, around 40,000 BCE, we see these beautiful images sculpted of the feminine with huge breasts 
and huge buttocks. Not what we aspire to today, but these beautiful images really in their own right show that she is the birth giver, huge tummy, of course. She gives birth, she nurtures the life, and she has this ampleness about her that sustains life. So that is the feminine, but she's more than that. She's actually the heart, the soul of the individual. She is feeling and love. And the ancients knew that no thought was really stable if it was not rooted in the heart of feeling. A knowing through feeling is what's associated with the feminine. Well, what was the masculine? (laughs) In all of these early times, the feminine was everywhere. She was sculpted. She was etched in stone. And all the way, you might say, if I'm speaking just of Western civilization, from Spain all the way through Europe, all the way to uh, the middle of what is now Russia, we see these incredible images. And even then, uh, as late as... uh, 6,000, which is what has been discovered by Maria Gambutis, archaeologist at UCLA, uh, that she saw that old Europe, this Eastern Europe and going into Russia, that the feminine images, that the feminine was so ample. I mean, there were so many images. She said she had probably a half a million, maybe more images. And the majority of the images uh, were feminine and this life-giving, but also this this joy, this incredible joy. They're wonderful images of her just sitting, having something in a cup and enjoying life. But she also was at the center of the labyrinth, which is the center of all meaning and purpose. And so when we walk the labyrinth, we're really trying to find our center in the center of nature, of soul, of heart, of love, so that we'll be capable of thinking, of having true ideas. Well, the masculine was not imaged as much during these prehistoric times, but he sometimes it was the mushroom. You know, the mushroom comes into being quickly and goes out quickly. Well, we could think of this as masculine sexual energy as well, but it's also the, our energy. If we say, in some sense, the masculine is symbolizing us, the individual who is born into time and space. We come in and then we go out. And when we come in, it's so important that we awaken to all of the characteristics of both the masculine and the feminine within each of us. And I remember when I took a group of students to Greece to study the symbolic structure that we would see in Greece and also in Minoan culture, that when I walked into the museum in Athens and I walked into a particular room, there was a round room and right in the center on a a pedestal actually was Zeus. Here was this magnificent physical male body standing with one foot forward and his arm stretched out and another arm back ready to throw the thunderbolt. Absolutely magnificent being who steps into the world to explore it, to know it. He's the scientist, the shaman, the mystic, the protector, the observer. And that's what's in all of us. We step into time and space. We want to understand it, to explore it, to protect what we love in it. And so that's the masculine in all of us. And of course, 
these go together very well. That aspect of ourselves, the masculine, certainly as women, we want to do that. We want to step out into the world and see what it is, know it for ourselves. But we also have that uh, potential in us to relate. We want to relate intimately to other. And when we bring all of these characteristics together, we can experience our own wholeness. And I'm so happy that our ancestors understood that. We are both masculine and feminine. And a lifetime we spend in integrating those and in in developing those uh, to the greatest extent that we can. Thank you for that beautiful synopsis. There's so many questions that I have along the way with this discussion in it. I mean, everything from shamanism, how it came into the world at a certain time, I find so interesting, this yeah. this download of the depths and of this understanding. So maybe we can put a pin in that. And then the feeling in my own body as you were kind of describing the masculine and feminine energies, because I've, I've been in this recent contemplation about the heart and how I have lived most of my life in my mind and many of us in this world, you know, and how the feminine aspect being the heart, how like if I want to talk about, you know, the microcosms that live within us, because Lauren and I talk about this a lot, that the, you know, the colonizer, the patriarchy or all these kind of energies can live inside. I've been seeing how my mind is like, (laughs) has a lot of these these attributes and conquers and overrides the heart and overrides this Mm -hmm. feeling. And I guess my question for you is, if we can talk about what happened in this time period, this is something Lauren and I love to d- discover and, and understand more deeply, but like, where did the kink in the hose happen where there was so much respect and reverence for all life and this understanding that we return to the earth and are of the earth to this? And I, I think that the story goes in many parts, right? Because And then to bring us to where we are today, where masculine and feminine is so confined into these insular boxes. And this conversation is is pretty nuanced, even in our modern day culture. So I'm curious about Mm -hmm. where all these kinks happened. Maybe you can explore a few. Well, the first kink happened in old Europe about 4000 BCE. There were people who came in to this old European culture, agricultural culture, very focused on the feminine, where all these delightful images were that Maria Gambutis uh, discovered and and published in two wonderful volumes with beautiful colored pictures of these these images. But she also discovered that around 4000 BCE, coming from the East from the Russian steppes, were people she called Kurgans. And they came in to Eastern Europe through Southern Russia into Eastern Europe and then gradually on down through Greece and Crete. Crete maintained that old tradition until about 1400, I think, much longer than Europe because these Kurgans came in earlier into Europe. And these Kurgans were patriarchs. They were very different from the agricultural people who loved the earth, had wonderful rituals honoring the feminine dimension of all nature. And even when they planted seeds and everything was focused on respect and love for 
the laws of nature. Well, in come these Kurgans with weapons. Now, let me jump back again into old Europe. Maria Gimbutas found no weapons, no weapons for destruction out of so many images. Now, people have been trying to challenge her in finding this or that, but basically it was, a, it was peaceful. And if we move back to the cave cultures, they had peace for 25,000 years. The sand bushmen in uh, the Kalahari Desert in Africa had 27,000 years of peace. And they would say more than that. We place them as coming into being around the 30,000 BCE. They say, no, we've been here 65,000 years. And they're very peaceful people. Old Europe which let's say around 10,000, 8,000, until the Kurgans came in, uh, they were peaceful. Just many centuries of, and thousands of years of peace. In come these Kurgans who were patriarchal. The man is in control. They come in with horses, which hadn't been, and weapons. And for about a thousand years, they kind of mix and mingle, but they're pretty much the male really feels he calls the meeting, so to speak. And eventually, he does take over. And we can see this in the Greek mythology. We can see that Hera is married to a male, the dominator, and they fight all the time. <laughs> and this is exactly what was taking place in the culture. When the men who wanted to dominate and bring about war were related to the women, they had trouble. When the men went to Troy and sacrificed one of the daughters, you can imagine what was happening with the mothers at home. I mean, there was just these tremendous differences, which you can see in Greek mythology, if you know what you're looking at, of that war between the patriarchal attitudes and how they live their lives and the matrifocal, not matriarchal, matrifocal. And uh, so... That's when the first kink became and into being in, in the Western culture. And of course, we are very much dominated still by those tendencies, those characteristics that came around 4000 BCE. But we did not even know about old Europe until the 20th century, last century. And many people rejected Maria Gambutas because she talked about this culture as being matrifocal. And she was very, very well known for a while. Now I'm hearing that many of the scholars in the universities are refusing to teach her her work. This is, <laughs> this is how it often works. She brought in this knowledge and she was, people fought with her everywhere. And, but it, there it was, we have all of the images. And now they're not even wanting to teach her work, but she saw what was happening. But she says, when she discovered this, she said, look, these have been just, just barely in the unconscious, you might say. They're within us. All of these images are still with us. And now we know where they came from. We have a very deep-rooted matrifocal culture of honoring the vastness of who we are in nature, in the cosmos, in the biology of the body, and the reality of the organ of soul, which is heart. So that's what we've had, and we didn't even know it. And when she would talk about that in conferences, I knew her, I became friends. In fact, I had her as one of my major professors during my doctoral work. She was at UCLA, I was at UC Irvine, and uh, 
And I remember one of my male professors just, well, he didn't know what she was talking about. Well, he would just go to the library and discover who she was in an afternoon. Well, of course, he couldn't very well do that. But this is it. She was, she was there and she understood this and people were beginning to understand, oh my goodness, we have a history we didn't even know about. A deep, deep history of honoring all of the feminine characteristics, potentials within everybody. We knew a lot about the masculine, but what we knew about the masculine was the masculine separated from the feminine. So then we had to try to say, well, now, what is it like when these two come together? Well, ancient culture dealt with that, too, even in the number system, you know, of the when the male is alone, he is the 666, the beast. <laughs> when, he sep- when we are separated from our feminine dimension, we become monstrous, and we can know that also when uh, the feminine alone can also be that. So the thing was, how do we bring these energies, these huge, vast potentials that we symbolize as feminine and masculine, how do we integrate them? I love this conversation so much, and I love going over this history again and getting a little deeper in it. So I see the feminine and masculine as these primal energies of the universe. Mm-hmm. It's what I see them as. And, mm-hmm. and I see that with all the mystic texts that we are created in God's image, we have these you know, two genders. Obviously, we can feel like we're in a different gender spectrum. We can present in different ways, but we have these two poles, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Masculine and feminine. And like you said, when they're in balance, we have harmony, harmony with ourselves, with each other, and with nature. And then we think about the history, and we think about living in the honoring of the feminine and the masculine being there to support and protect the sacred and the feminine. Mm -hmm. And then we think about these Kurgans, these warrior patriarchal tribe, this warrior patriarchal tribe that came in and basically changed the trajectory and the cosmology and the way of thinking of of the West, which now we know has influenced the entire world. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because this is kind of circling back a little bit to what Shana was pinning around how at the same time in the world, shamanism kind of just arrived. It's like awareness, this Mm -hmm. elevation in consciousness, right? And I think we go through these cosmic periods of like a tipping point where there's a new revelation. And have you heard of the hundredth monkey theory? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the hundredth monkey, like there's one island with a certain amount of monkeys. And by the time a hundred, the hundredth one knows how to use this rock as a tool, the island next door, the, the monkeys learn how to use that tool too. It's like a tipping point of consciousness, mass consciousness. And so this idea of the patriarchy mindset, this this cosmology that male everything is superior to the feminine. It's like, what is that trauma? You know, what is that shift? And I think there's only speculation about this, but that shift in mindset, that shift in the heart, that shift in the psyche, that begins to belittle the feminine for so many thousand years. And I've heard Anne Baring speak about two catastrophic floods. And one that we know biblically is the flood of Noah. And in living in harmony with, with nature for so long, after this massive 
tsunami, flood that destroyed so much, fear became, it entered into our relationship with nature. I think there was probably always fear, but maybe fear, resentment, loss, and perhaps she theorizes that this created a skepticism in nature and a, and a, a desire to start to dominate and control nature for our own safety which then led to the dominating of self and other and other cultures, et cetera, mm-hmm. which is the perhaps the seed of colonialism, really. And so I wanted to pass that to you to hear your thoughts on, on that and any other ideas that come to your heart or mind that you've thought about, mm-hmm. about that energetic shift. Yeah. Well, Anne and I uh, have talked about that too, <laughs> you know. And she was here for a week when she was working on Dream of the Cosmos, and we, we, we kept talking about, you know, where did these people come from? What's going on with them? And I think that's probably a good possibility because we now know we have a lot of evidence that there was probably a worldwide culture a whole worldwide culture, and they were in contact with each other. It looks like they were seafaring people. And so if it's around 10,000 and 9,000 BCE that this happened, I mean, just wiped everything out, then, of course, those who had honored nature so much, depended on her, trusted her, the great mother, what did she do to us? I can see and would agree with what Anne said, that this is a real possibility. Maybe those people coming from southern Russia had experienced it much more than the people who were in old Europe. So they may have come with that sense of we've been betrayed and we're going to control it. And, you know, much later on, there's that image of we will put nature on the rack and torture her secrets out of her. What a horrible way to learn about nature rather than relating to nature. I mean, if one wants to know any secrets, you need to relate to them to allow her to reveal it. No, put her on the rack, torture these secrets out of her. This was an attitude that many in our species have had and continue to have. And so it could be that these people came from places that were had experienced that damage more than others. We don't know. We do have to speculate. But something in the human experience with these people occurred that made them take over and say, wait a minute, if, if that characteristic is to protect, then that would be one way of protecting. We will protect people. And we, and, you know, you have to kind of believe in yourself. I often think sometimes of the arrogance of surgeons, you know, that I've uh, gone to with friends or whatever, that they seem egotistical. But I thought, well, you know, I'd have to be pretty egotistical if I walked in and put a knife to a person. <laughs> so it could well be that, you know, there is that thinking, I need to I need to believe in myself and my ability to protect and take care of. And that can just grow and grow until, uh, well, you don't know, and I have to control you and everything and everybody. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a result of not trusting. And also, I think it's also an aspect of, of not having that inner experience, that spiritual experience of our relationship to the cosmos. But even if we had that, we would want to know, well, if we have this relationship, why did you destroy us? You know, or because we tend to blame the divine for that or nature for that. But this looked like it was a comet coming out of 
uh, out of the cosmos that hit us. And so, yeah, you would have to think, why, what? Well, I'm not going to let this happen again. So I think uh, an understanding and a sympathy for the development of patriarchy is, is in order. I think you're spot on around trust. Because mm-hmm. when I've examined this within myself and where I can find this imbalance is when I don't trust. And for me, trust, when I'm in trust... It's almost like surrender, right? I'm I'm open to what mm-hmm. the universe has in store for me. And then there's that word that everybody says, flow. You know, and life just kind of flows into you and you're able to receive and to let go and to receive and to let go and to mm-hmm. receive and to let go. And that is such a beautiful place to be. But when I don't trust, what happens? I'm scared. You know, I want to assert my place. I can become competitive. I can become assertive. I can become dominant. You know, I want to, in a way it becomes greedy because I'm, I'm needing to protect for myself. So it's like, let me mm-hmm. hoard, let me take maybe even more than I need. And <laughs> just to be sure, yeah. Just to be sure, because mm-hmm. who knows, because I don't trust, I'm scared. You know, it's really like this almost childlike fear inside of, something's not right. I'm not going to be okay. And so that amplified is what I see. It's so interesting that you can bring it into yourself and notice, but I see how it can happen like, and what we carry because I see it in me. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I think probably we've all (laughs) felt that. And Mm -hmm. if that trust and openness is betrayed by someone we love or someone we trusted, then we're really in trouble because we put up all of the barriers. So there are all of these reasons why uh, we would become power-hungry dominators because power is to be used in a way to protect. And I look at the world today and I see the extreme end of this in wanting to control the whole planet (laughs) and completely control everyone. This is a tremendous illness. So it's how do we balance ourselves with the ability to be open to trust and know that there's a potential for betrayal, but still be open enough and protective of ourselves enough. How do we hit that balance? You know, how can we allow those masculine aspects to develop in us because we need them? And at the same time, how can we also allow all of those feminine characteristics of heart and feeling and nurturing relatedness develop. I just want to add one more thing that it's this same fear, the same underlying feeling is what then created all of our systems. And so mm-hmm. let's talk about our legal structures, you know, and all the different laws that we have, like created in order to protect people. So it's not just the work on yourself, but then you look out and it just ripples, 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 ripples in the material. I don't know. Let's let's see if we can unpack where we go from here. Lauren, I'm curious about your thoughts. I want to add to that too, because it's a similar thought that I'm having right now is, you know, some empathy and compassion is warranted for how patriarchal thinking was created. You can also see that like masculine energy to protect. You can see how from the wounding, from the fear, from the lack of trust, 
the the desire to protect actually really comes from a place of love, mm-hmm. but it's not feeling whole and connected with the cosmos, and therefore the love is distorted, right? The protection is self-serving. I mean, yes, it's serving for like our loved ones and maybe our tribe, but then I think what can happen from there is this skepticism of, well, I need to protect my tribe, so this tribe over here might be a threat, and that creates this inner division, mm-hmm. right? When we turn away from the mother, it creates an inner division inside of us, and so we we see so clearly in society the distortion of the masculine and how it's embedded in everything. I think it's like one of the most obvious things to see. But what's interesting to think about is actually it comes from like an, a natural impulse that's that's loving. It's just distorted because it's connected from disconnected from the feminine. That's a very good way of putting it. And as a mother of a male child, I thought, well, I had a father. He was he was loving in his own way, but aloof, a bit aloof, not really knowing quite how to show it, except by taking care of us. And he was a great cook, so he would cook for us. But I can remember also when we were in the country, I can remember his big hands lifting me, tiny, I was only a few years old, up on the horse. Just those protective things. He was so I had a positive experience with the father. And then my brother and I were like twins. I had a very positive experience there and also with my husband. Uh, and that could allow me not even to develop certain aspects, you know, of the masculine because they were there for me. So it was only after their deaths that I thought, well, there are a few things here lacking. <laughs> I need to step up and, and develop some of these things within myself since there's no one here to. Uh, but with with a, a child, a boy, I I saw how loving, how related, how all of the feminine qualities that we value were certainly in the male child. And as he grew up as a teen, of course, became more and more masculine, uh, but look out at the world and think, where are the masculine images that I really want to have as, as a model? You know, seeing these and all of the young guys who would come, it's that it's what's out there. What what do we want to be like? Where are they? You know, where are those models? Well, many of those men had adjusted just like these boys would have to adjust to some degree, they would feel, to fit into the world, to be able to survive in the world. And those who refused to do that were always kind of the the outsiders. (laughs) <laughs> you know, but I think I was very grateful to be able to be a mother of a boy. And I can remember when the doctor said, oh, I think in those days you would tell, he said, I think it's going to be a boy. And that was kind of a shock to me. Oh, my goodness, a boy. <laughs> you know, and, But it was wonderful to, to fall in love with a masculine from birth on or pre-birth on. Uh, and I, I think that we can never come together. We can never develop the masculine and feminine within us unless we can see the beauty of both. But we can also see both when they are separated and distorted. We can see the masculine in our own country politics. And I I sometimes wonder, what if we had gone into Afghanistan as helpers of create, you know, there were so many, or What if we truly could negotiate out of a desire to help those countries become who they are 
you know, achieve their identity and their place in the world rather than out of our fear to dominate. And I think that fear sometimes grows into just a habit of wanting to be in control of everything. It becomes a real pathology, I think. So, but I think that we have to see the pathology of the masculine and we have to see the pathology of the feminine. I mean, we've all seen mothers who wanted to control everything and absolutely destroy the lives of their children, their male children and female children. So we don't want that either. I love the Mayan oracle, which says, you know, that polarity is the loom on which reality is strung. So we have many kinds of opposites, but certainly we're thinking today about the male and the female, or the, we also should talk about the conceptual, the logical, and the symbolic, mystical, spiritual. But what we're trying to do in life is how do we work within this loom to integrate these opposites within us? But in the Western world, we simply cut the loom right down the middle so that the loom doesn't even exist almost. It's just we've almost destroyed this flow of energies. It's like we got sort of in one side. Now with the feminist movement and that awakening of the feminine to wanting to participate in life, we've begun to change things to bring this loom back together. But we're still, this is the work of our time, I think, to recreate the loom so that these opposites can flow in a related way and integrate the other into our own being. You know, Shana, you said that you tend to live in your mind. Well, I think most of us have been brought up because we're brought up in the Western world to live in the mind. It's the conceptual mind that is everything, the left brain. And from the French Enlightenment on, in fact, the French Enlightenment, the, those philosophers said, we are the apex of all rational thought in the world. A little egotism there. <laughs> but everything that came before, the mythic, the symbolic, all of that nonsense, dream, vision, crazy. No, it's all left brain. And this is what won the day. There were many others who rejected it and said, that's not correct. You're absolutely wrong. They'd have nothing to do with it, but they didn't win. It was the left-brainers who won. But if we could go back just a minute in history, too, even, well, that would be after the flood, old Europe existed, and they didn't seem to have these problems that the Kurgans had. But also then at around 1500, we have earlier, earlier, the old Egyptian civilization, I mean, they were they knew how to integrate the male and the female energies, and their rituals honored both and incredibly. I mean, the feminine is just incredibly honored for the joy and the quality of life and of love and also of rulership, if that came. And the masculine had all of these qualities honored. So they were true visionaries, and, and they had a lot of ability to experience other dimensions of reality. But they also had a beautiful knowledge of integrating the feminine with the masculine, the symbolic with the rational, and a shaman mystic tradition. And this also influenced the First Temple Judaism. And they were shaman mystics. And the feminine was honored. She was in the Holy of Holies. The priest went into the Holy of Holies and united with her in the sacred marriage. Otherwise, he had no power. 
And her images were everywhere of the body of the feminine, as well as groves and groves of sacred trees. And in the wisdom text, the text of the first temple, Judaism, were the wisdom texts, and she was wisdom. She is called wisdom. And when the Deuteronomist came in, we don't even know where they came from, but 621 BCE, the Deuteronomist came in and said, all of this is wrong. They burned all the trees and they destroyed all of her images and they actually threw out the wisdom literature. So now it was all masculine. And many Jews did not go for that. Many of the Jews took the wisdom literature to Egypt, and they continued that shaman mystic tradition as therapeutic or essays all over the Palestinian area. And later, the birth of Jesus, that whether that's historical or real, it grew out of this first temple shaman mystic tradition that was still maintained by various groups of Jews, certainly those at the Dead Sea, were Jews who would not go along with the second temple. They were mystics, and they said, we carry the true sovereignty of Egypt. I mean, of uh, certainly of Egypt, that was part of their influence, of the first temple of Judaism. So here we have all of that, but it no longer has power. It's no longer honored officially. So it's that was the beginning of all of these patriarchs who came in to influence our spiritual traditions that were actually very powerful until 621 BCE. And so when the church gained power over these Christians of Jesus tradition, first Jews and then including Christians and then Christian, when the church came in in the later 300s AD, they also kept the same teachings as the Deuteronomist. And so there it was. It was control. They even changed the Jesus myth. No, Jesus, we know from the Nagamati texts, which were texts which were very popular during his time, but were buried so that the church wouldn't destroy them. We find out from those texts that Jesus did not come to save anybody. He said, I came to remind you of who you are. And very related now they're saying Mary Magdalena was his spouse, and as a Jew, he would have been married. So here we have this couple, this sort of archetypal couple of Jesus and Mary Magdalena, both mystics, we'd have to say. And yet the church changed that. No, Jesus is not teaching you of what's within you. It's not even mentioning that. No, those texts are destroyed or burned or, or buried. No, what is going on here is that Jesus is a God outside of you, and you must worship outside yourself. So it's, again, just like the Deuteronomist, outside yourself, outside ourselves. And we can't come in touch with the divine within us unless we go within. So here was the real influencers, the Deuteronomist and the Roman Church in, our, in Western history. And there was the rebirth of that ancient tradition after 700 years of the church takeover in the high Middle Ages. This is an incredible rebirth of the feminine. It's just it's incredible beauty of the feminine and the power and the desire to relate to her, to understand her, and to go within, to have an inner spiritual experience. Well, when the church realized what was going on, that was wiped out. 
the Parsifal stories, the Holy Grail, all of those, we are, that is still the myth of our time because we didn't achieve it. It was wiped out. Then there was the Italian Renaissance, a rebirth continuing, trying to bring this into balance. That was wiped out. Then the Rosicrucian in, around in Germany and Prague, um, and that again was the feminine, the mystic. Here were scientists and mystics working together. And they knew that you can't separate it. A mystic has a conceptual brain, so he's going to want to understand what he experienced. So these go together. These are part of the opposite than the loom. The church destroyed it, wiped out their literature. And in there was a 30 years war. Then in 1660, Western science developed through uh, the Society for uh, Scientific Research in England in 1660. What the church do? Made it very clear. You cannot research anything that has to do with inner experience because they they knew that once you have inner experience, you're not likely to be part of their organization. So here it was, no inner experience. Many of these scientists who were part of it had been mystics. So therefore, the Western worldview that there's nothing but matter, there's no meaning, no purpose, we're fluke of nature, you're dead, you're dead. All of that came as a result of the Deuteronomist, the Roman church, and all of that censorship and that's what we're left with today. But we're trying to do something about it. <laughs> you know, we are we're, trying to do something about it. We are another Renaissance period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just kind of reflecting on that, how this like new age thought and spirituality is kind of this, this Renaissance. But I, I don't know. My heart just feels so many things like expansion and contraction as you talk about all these ages and these time periods. And I find it really interesting too, how like in Judaism, it's one God, right? And one of the like largest beliefs is no false idols. And so immediately what Christianity did was create like an idol worship in a way, like putting something outside of yourself. So I see how that Mm -hmm. created like an immense separation from Judaism early on. And yeah, this split is super interesting. I never thought about it, but I know that in my own life, it's kind of been like an inner dialogue within my family. And as I've come to the Christ story and Mary Magdalene as these symbolic mystics and and really like loving the teaching that was brought, not by him, but by many others around the same time I'm learning. And so thank you for sharing all of this because it's fascinating and I... Mm. I hope that this this period of enlightenment that we can really return to nature and and see nature as everything. In terms of Judaism, it's this there are the stories about the lost feminine and that she is standing outside the gates of Jerusalem worried about her people who no longer have her. She's locked outside the city gate and finally she realizes there's no home for her on the earth. And she goes back into the cosmos, into the spirit world, because they won't let her into the city. And this is certainly a story of how tragically she was thrown out. I mean, no longer existing in the Holy of Holies, no longer seen as necessary to, to find our own wholeness. Wisdom, wisdom is gone. And that, that image is so powerful. And so I think what we're doing today and I think there's a huge movement that is bringing her back into time and space in our hearts, in our lives, 
to give her that place to live and be known and honored in us. Yeah. I agree. Hallelujah. <laughs> I want to speak about how practically our listeners can begin to integrate masculine and feminine polarity within themselves. And I want to share a little bit first, maybe we can all three share about our journey with that. And I, I can go first. I mean, it's kind of hard to describe where my balance was. Was I like 30% feminine, 70% masculine? <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't exactly quantify, but I can say that I was out of balance and I was deeply, deeply insecure. So insecure with deep, low self-worth. And that's one of the most common things mm -hmm. I hear from women is low self-worth. Um, it's pretty universal. Oh, and wow. this low self-worth enabled me to date men who also had wounding and were awful to me. Mm -hmm. And so this was my path for a little while until I speak about this a lot, my one divine intervention. I got picked up by the hair by the divine and dropped into the Amazon and <laughs> life changed from being with the shamanic cultures mm -hmm. of respecting nature. And when I was there, I had this really big epiphany that was like, oh yeah, I've got some father issues. And that was my first clue into healing the balance within me mm -hmm. was thinking about the influence of my father. And come, I also had mother issues as well because who doesn't? But I had this inspiration come to me when I was in the middle of the forest to do a little ritual to emancipate myself from my biological parents spiritually for an opportunity to encounter the divine mother and the divine father. And it wasn't that I was not going to love my parents or be in their lives. It was actually for the sake of the relationship, for the sake of my own being, that I did a ritual to emancipate myself so that I could come to understand the vibration of the divine mother and the divine father. And my relationship with the divine mother came first, came more, more easily for me. I think probably because of the patriarchal culture and patriarchal religions, this aspect of a male God, there was a lot of shame and judgment that I, I mm -hmm. felt when I was trying to connect with a masculine source of the cosmos. And so with the mother and my mom was my angel in life. It was really easy for me to open and weep and let her into my heart. And whether, you know, I'm speaking this term mother but it feels like also a primordial energy, you know, mm -hmm. of the feminine mm -hmm. and the divine feminine. And I felt like she began to heal me. She began to show me my worth. She began to help me let go of bad habits and, and bad thoughts that were uh, sabotaging my relationship with myself and with others. And step by step, following her instructions, I encountered a really profound experience with the masculine, the divine masculine. And through this, I began to notice 
and experience and call into my field healthy masculine mm-hmm. energy. Good. And I had the presence of the father in brothers, mm-hmm. in these beautiful men that surrounded me and supported me. And then I remember I did a, a, a bout of celibacy in my early 20s when I initiated my spiritual journey um, for two years. I didn't flirt with guys. I didn't think about guys. I just <laughs> went with celibate because my trauma that I carried in my body and my dynamics with men, there was really a lot of anxious attachment, a lot of um, really harmful behaviors from the abuse that I experienced when I was younger. And so in my celibacy, towards the end, when I started really yearning for a partner, I would pray. I would pray that my spiritual guide would come guide me to sleep so that I could feel what it would be like to sleep next to a good man, Mm. a man who could love me and to teach me vibrationally what that would feel like. And in time, through growing older and making these prayers, I wasn't only finding these qualities manifest in men in my life. I began to manifest these qualities within me, Mm -hmm. this capacity to care for myself, this capacity to create more organization for myself, more, um, yeah, more of a container for my creative heart centered essence to flourish. And so my best piece of advice for those of you who are seeking to balance your masculine energy is to examine what your relationship is with mother, father, God. And if father is hard to access, if father has trauma there because of, you know, this male God in the sky myth, then really begin this practice of opening to the mother and communicating with the mother to help you balance these energies. That is how I did it. So I'd love to hear how how you both have been navigating that internally. I want to hear from Betty because this is something I'm actually in a deep prayer about because I feel like uh, I have masculine inside of myself. It's probably been more dominant than the feminine. My feminine's coming into more balance. I feel good with that. Now I'm like, okay, really refining the masculine. I'm starting to see really good men outside of me, but in a way still the the relationships are still contorted. I don't know how to explain, but it's like making the different archetypes of masculinity more clear because I think mm-hmm. even with my relationships in the external world, like let's say brother, partner, father, there's like this weird contortion that kind of makes them all the same. And so then like my anger for one archetype leaches into the other or some confusion about one leaches into the other. This interesting uh, thing I'm sorting through right now around the masculine and yeah, kind of really trying to understand like where this confusion comes from and how to really clear and integrate it so I can have these more clear relationships with others. So maybe you know something about this, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> What's beautiful about the two of you, I mean, is that you're aware, you're conscious, <laughs> and consciously working on these things. I mean, that's what it's all about, I think. And when I was 
very young. Well, first of all, I was a good friend to my brother. And I think I carried that relationship with me. And I always thought of men as friends. And I always related to them as a friend. I I didn't think of them as a a partner of, of dating or whatever, usually, unless it happened that, you know, we did care for each other, and then it kind of worked out. But I thought of them, first of all, as friends. And Throughout my career, I worked with men a lot. We team taught, did a lot of things together, and there never was that uh, flirting type of thing because I guess they saw it wasn't, I didn't feel that way, they didn't feel that way, and we were able to get a lot of work done. But I think that that's a gift from my brother, you know, that I had that. And my father was a masculine, as I said, it was a bit removed, so I I knew how to... <laughs> work that situation and just said manipulate that. In fact, I knew how to get his attention. So I was a mediator for my brother as well, that if he wanted to go somewhere, my dad would usually answer him, no, first of all. So I'd go into my father and I would talk about a lot of things and Bill would like to go. My brother would like to, oh yeah, what's sure, he can go. So I learned how to manipulate him, not only for myself, but for my brother. But uh, he wasn't too manipulatable, however. But nevertheless, I learned about the more removed masculine in that way, which I certainly came across in, in life. But that whole thing of insecurity, I think that even if we kind of as children feel okay about ourselves, when we enter into the world, we're confronted with situations which make us feel insecure. My first job in college, I went, I had on a dress, and I was carrying my books, <laughs> and here all these men came in with their suits and ties and briefcases, and I thought, geez, I feel like here I am in a little cotton dress or something, you know, I felt so insecure about it. So just the images, you know, the image of the male and that apparel had power and mine didn't. So I had to learn, wait a minute, you know, you have to find your own power. Your own. So that was, a, I think for all, and I remember during the feminist movement, all the women were always thinking, I would like to say this, I would like to make this talk, but I know I can't because. So we're always talking about, well, what you could do and what you can get away with and that kind of thing. So we were learning how to value who we are and what we had to say. And that's, I think, a journey of the feminine, uh, always, to, to do that. But then I went to college because I wanted to see if I could find out what it's all about. And there I confronted this more patriarchal and scientific worldview. And so it was a long process of trying to find out what's really going on. And I was always looking for something that was mystical or spiritual. Is it real? <laughs> and then I, I dated someone who was a Lutheran minister. He had just finished the seminary, and over Newton, I think. I think it's a part of Yale now. He had just finished that. He had a party at his new church for couples that many, the guys had gone there. But anyway, that night they talked about Jung and mathematics and physics and spirit. I did not know what they were talking about. I listened. I did not open my mouth. <laughs> and we went into his library, and I selected a book, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. And I thought, I, so my journey with Jung and Jung became the father image for me of, of soul. He was intellectually brilliant, but he was seeking soul. And he went deep within himself and was a great visionary. And so he became a model for me. 
And, uh, and I'm so grateful for that because I read him for years and years. And I had one of my early experiences with him was that I was in the forest and it was dark and I saw a, a light and I went to the place it was light on and I thought someone's in there. So I knocked on the door and uh, Jung answered the door. He had a red robe, um, wow. silver hair, and the rubedo of alchemy, that intensification of becoming. And he invited me in. And I saw in the library all of these beautiful books, leather brown books, beautiful, beautiful books, ancient texts. And so as I went through the threshold, I tripped <laughs> and flew in and landed on my stomach, <laughs> which showed... Uh, my confidence in myself, I guess, was lacking, but also I didn't know anything at that point. I was a beginner, and uh, but I showed up. I was there, and I was there to learn from him, and I think he was uh, my mystical teacher for years. Wow. And in the next part of the dream, I'm sitting, we are outside sitting on a cement patio and the ancient, ancient forest with ancient animals is there beside us. So it's the great past and the present. And there were so many pairs of opposites in that scene that were coming together. But he and I were sitting there as equals, talking and sharing our ideas. And so I think that it was through the dream world uh, as well as the study, the world of study, that I began to discover in the past these great masculine images <laughs> that truly gave to a culture of what we needed, although they were dismissed. But nevertheless, I was learning from them. But when I went to Peru uh, the first time with shamans, I began to realize I've served my time with the male. I have spent my life learning from the masculine. And I've learned a lot and I'm grateful. But now it can't be from the outside. And I, I call forth that great feminine within, the soul. From now on, I want you to be my teacher. And when we arrived at the mountain on Machu Picchu, and it was my turn, we had a ritual with an Amazonian shaman, and he was chanting. And when I put my forehead on, on the stone of the, he called the hitching post of the sun, that which connected to the heavens, it just something, I cried. I felt like history cried through me. I cried and I cried and I cried. It was like there was something else. There was that whole feminine dimension of the past that wept for all that has been lost and suffered because she had no place on the earth. And so that was the beginning of her being my mentor. Oh my goodness, Betty. That touched me so insanely deeply. Oh my goodness, so deep. I, uh, I had chills with that invocation and that prayer to the mother, to the feminine, to mm -hmm. teach you. And it sparked so many thoughts around this era, this time of the feminine that is 
upon us where I believe with my full being revelations. You know, I think many of us have had this revelation that we are entering into a time where the feminine is not only rising, she's awakening again. She's being let through the doors of our psyches again. We're letting her in and she's teaching us and she's guiding us. And one thing that's so powerful about your story that I feel really inclined to put a asterisk by is that she wept. Mm. She mm. wept. And when you think about all that's happening right now and all the emotions that we're feeling, it's her. Mm. We're not defective. There's nothing wrong with no. us. We're processing the trauma together. That's it. Processing the trauma of her exclusion from life. The absence of the soul as a reality every moment that we live. Yes, we are processing the trauma. And much later, I had told you this experience earlier, much later, after my son died, my husband and I and a shaman from South America were went to Death Valley for a ritual. And that was so powerful that I will never forget it, is that I felt like I'd been caught in the underworld. I could not release myself. And then suddenly I felt this, this after hours, I felt this voice, I felt this feminine being moving through the desert. And then I knew she was going to speak through me, and I didn't want her to say what I knew she was going to say. And she screamed through my throat, it can never be healed. That trauma, that, that horror of the suffering that she saw on the earth, that was so, it was trauma. It took me a long time to understand that. I feel now that that was much more than the trauma that I was feeling for the death of my child. It was, it was global. It was huge, more than I could ever contain. And I knew it was not my voice. But I felt that, that, that the divine suffers as we suffer. And people have suffered so much. And many people feel it can't be healed because they, she isn't here in her. We don't have the feminine dimension of the divine, we are able to love and to relate and have children be born and die and we grieve. But if we have, if we can draw her back from the cosmos into our hearts, into our being, into daily life, then we could see that there's, we could see the larger picture, the deeper meaning. And we also would not have to suffer like this. But there was some part of the feminine divine, and I'm not sure I understand it entirely yet, some part of the feminine divine that that trauma was almost too great to even begin to bear for her. It makes total sense to me. It's almost as if there's these multiple, I mean, I imagine that the divine is both dark and light, right? It's both these uh, it's everything. So these emotions that we feel, this hatred, this rage, this trauma, this isolation, all of this is still encompassed in the divine. We're not mm-hmm. we're not separate in our suffering. So there is an aspect of the divine that suffers with us. Exactly. 
I'm in tremendous right. suffering. Yes, tremendous, tremendous for what's happened on the and is happening on the earth. Mm-hmm. And it's this beautiful reminder that we are not forsaken in those places. Mm-hmm. That you know, in our sacred facilitator program, and we speak about how to hold trauma mindful space and how to really be with women and orient uh, to these really big subjects and these big times. And one of the things we say is nobody wants pity. No. No. Nobody wants pity. People want to be met Mm -hmm. deeply. Mm -hmm. They want to be met. If you're suffering, don't want to pat on the head and say, oh, it will get better. It's no, I want to feel you here. I'm here with you. And I love this conversation because I feel like that's part of the healing. It's it's not holding our pain of separation and the distortion that's happened throughout the ages down as this like dirty thing that we don't want to give to people. Mm-mm. It's like, no, like if we can open ourselves to feel it and hold it and we can have the type of friends and the type of community that can be there with us, mm-hmm. feel it with us, it it's like I, I'm thinking of Jesus' words, when two or more are gathered, I am here. Oh, yeah. It's like when two are meeting, the divine is meeting with us. Mm-hmm. And we can meet with the divine alone, but there's, there's so much shame. There's so much shame on the earth for what has happened. It's like an unbearable shame that's maddening. I feel like shame can't be healed alone. It must be healed in community. Yes, yes, I agree. And so we must meet each other there. We need each other, yes. I think that that what that voice encompassed was what many, many, many people, women and men, of course, have felt is just, it can't be healed. Where's the meaning in it, you know? It's because it, so much of the suffering has come out of our pathology that we have brought so much suffering to each other and therefore I think we need each other to heal and yeah, when, when my son was in the hospital dying and people would come, nobody said it's going to be all right or it's okay. They, some of them said, we just wish we knew what to do. I said, you, you are doing it. You're here. You know, that's, that's what we need. We just, their presence. They're, they were present and sharing the feeling. And that's what we all need to heal for every aspect of our lives. So I'm curious about wholeness. And in this, in this time, I feel... Like the work is wholeness and you can call it masculine, feminine. You can call it really whatever you want in whatever way relates to each one. But how do we begin this work of, of finding wholeness within ourselves? I think what you two have been talking about is exactly that work. Is that, you know, I love the image, the ancient, certainly old European image of the labyrinth, although it also existed twenty some thousand BCE as well in Siberia, that image of the labyrinth. And I love how Karenyi, Carl Karenyi, a classical scholar, said that the labyrinth, in the labyrinth, we walk around and around, and all every step of the way is our, is our attempt to integrate. We meet different experiences all along the way. As you have, each of you has talked about, we've all three talked about the experiences in our lives. Each of us has had different stations, you might say, of the labyrinth along the way. And we experience that. We learn from that. We integrate. We try to heal what is not something we want to keep with us. 
but we go around and around and down and down to the deepest part of ourselves, where, as Karenyi says, we confront the divine, the cosmic mind, not as other, but as self. And that cosmic mind is masculine and feminine and beyond. It is that vastness beyond the polarities. But each of us in our journey, I mean, one thing might seem not so important that we do, and the chances of us devaluing it is great, are great, <laughs> you know, but each instance in our lives, when we are conscious and open and looking, is a step in that labyrinth, that great labyrinth of taking in all of the world and integrating it in our own unique way until we do meet this vast otherness, the wholeness of who we all are, potentially. We meet that, we experience that, and we know we, we are it. Mm. And I love that it's both transcendental and a deep encountering of our humanness. Exactly. Well, yes, and that's what like, the feminine brings, is the matter. She is matter. Yeah. <laughs> she is... Yeah. There's, it's perfect as it is. Yes, it's right perfect here. with its pain. It's perfect with it all. It's, 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 it's whole already. It's the remembrance yeah. of that. Yes, and it's the, the Father God was removed from time and space and matter. But mm. I want to jump back a little bit in history, too, and say that in, in old, older Judaism, that Yahweh was married, had a consort, or at least one he loved, and it was together that she and he created the universe. And when the Deuteronomist cut all of that out, he became the old, jealous, vengeful tyrant of the Old Testament. That's an image of the divine masculine that we were we had in our history in the West. It's dreadful. He's a tyrant. He was not that while the feminine was still with him. So it's our work to bring back that, bring back his beloved whom he lost or abandoned and so that they can meet and love and he will not exist as he existed in the Old Testament. That just... That tees up perfectly for our last question. <laughs> we always ask our guests to have an experience of channeling the Great Mother, giving advice and guidance to us all. But today, I want to ask you if you could be a channel right now for the Great Father, the Divine Masculine, in harmony with the divine feminine, <laughs> what would he, it, say? <laughs> what I think, just as a spontaneous response to that, is that we are already giving voice to him. We are stepping out in the world to understand it, to explore it, to understand how the masculine became wounded. He would want us to understand his wounds and how to heal him by loving him, understanding him, coming back to him in equal partnership. 
But I think in order to have this kind of integrated relationship in our own wholeness, we have to understand the masculine outside of us and within us that's been deeply wounded. And therefore, the feminine has. Understand our wounds and come together in love and and a desire for relationship. I think that that's what is so important from the masculine perspective, if we looked at it just from that, is it not to be shunned, not to be made fun of either, not to be rejected as some horrible type of being, <laughs> but what caused you to be this way as a patriarch? How can we release you from that? And you know, I thought too of an experience I had from the feminine great mother it was not long after Pishti, my son died, and I was lying on the couch and I felt her come and stand beside me. And she sang, I won't try to sing it, <laughs> but I will say what she said. It was, create your worlds to keep me well. Mm. Create your worlds to keep me well. Mm. Thank you so much, Betty, for being here on the Time of the Feminine podcast. You are one of the many reasons this podcast exists to bring the wisdom and the beauty of your messages and of your study to the world and to the women who and men who seek this. So thank you so much. This is such an honor to be with you again and to <laughs> receive. Oh, and... A round of applause to you and all of the feminine pioneers who have been excavating this wisdom and sharing it with us all. There have been many, many, many. <laughs> yes, many in the past. Yes, and, and you, you too. among them. Oh, thank you. Mm. Well, and you too are joining the ranks. You are our present. <laughs> we little youngins, we're learning all that we can. <laughs> well, you're pretty powerful. You mustn't forget mm. that. <laughs> you're the new wave. <laughs> new wave. Here we go. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. To follow Betty, to learn more about her, you can go to her website at www.kamlak.com. We love you. Talk to you again next week. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about the Global Sisterhood, you can follow us on Instagram at the Global Sisterhood. Or you can tune in to one of our programs. Just go to globalsisterhood.org. It is such a privilege and such an honor to speak with all these amazing women and to continue to speak with you. If you would like to join one of our circles or programs and dive in deeper and have these conversations yourself with us, we would love to invite you in deeper, sister. So just go to globalsisterhood.org to learn more.